this is my conversation with James Pierce. James is a writer, executive coach, and philosopher. He helps people master their emotions and transcend the mind. You can learn more about his coaching on his website, james-pierce.com. In our conversation together, we talk about misconceptions in modern psychology, shoulds and prescriptions, perspective, the idea of viewing the world through a lens of prior theories, direct observation, meditation, and more. As you'll see, James and I don't entirely converge upon certain things, and I think that adds an interesting touch to this conversation. Hope you enjoy. To support this podcast, please check out the Buy Me A Coffee link in the description. And now, here is my conversation with James Pierce. You have this tweet where you say, modern lifestyle is weak in the body, and modern psychology weakens the mind. The first one seems pretty uncontroversial, but what's wrong with modern psychology? By modern psychology in that tweet, first of all, I'm not referring to like the actual you know, field of study psychology. I'm more referring to this tendency people have to kind of label everything as some sort of disease. Like a person doesn't just feel anxious, they have anxiety and they make anxiety into a big problem. A person doesn't just feel sad, they have depression, they suffer from depression and depression becomes this big beast that they have to overcome. And when you make your problems, especially mental problems, because they're not easily measurable, like it's easy, it's very easy to measure a physical problem. Like how much pain are you in? How much money do you need? Like that type of stuff. But a mental problem like anxiety or or depression is very difficult to measure. And so you can imagine it to be much bigger than it is. And the bigger you imagine it to be, the more difficult it is to overcome. Seneca has this famous quote where he says, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. I think, you know, that relates to that. And Yeah, absolutely. Just this idea of labeling it. So do you think there's a problem with labeling your kind of problems or trying to find a solution? Will that be a better way to go about that anxiety that people, the so-called anxiety? Yeah, it's my my approach to these things has always been to figure out how it works. What are the, what are the actual mechanics here at play? So if you look at something like anxiety, people generally think that it's a product of circumstances. You know, they think I'm anxious because I have this deadline that I'm trying to meet or I have this you know, project at work and I can't figure out how to do it. And it's actually not the circumstances that cause anxiety. Anxiety is caused by the mind and it's the circumstances that trigger it so because it you know happens chronologically the event happens and then you feel the anxiety people attribute it to the event and they kind of overlook the underlying process going on in their mind that makes them feel anxious Hmm. so my approach is to you know understand the process in the mind and see what you can do to stop that from happening so that regardless of what your circumstances are, you won't feel anxious. When you say understand the process of the mind, you mean look at the contents of the mind, the thoughts, the patterns? and Yeah. Yeah. So you, if you watch your mind, you'll notice that when you feel certain emotions that you feel a lot, there's a particular pattern that your mind runs through. So like in the case of anxiety, the precursor to anxiety is caring about a particular result. So like I I brought up the example of like you have some project that you have to do at work and you're worried specifically about what's going to happen if you can't complete it. 
So if there was no perceived consequence, there'd be no anxiety. So if you want to go about conquering anxiety, you have to figure out why you're so scared of the consequences. I'm also deeply intrigued by this idea of perspective and how your understanding can dictate your observation. You know, that which simply exists is understood through and molded by this lens or worldview of the person observing. And so how you observe one thing is also how you observe everything through this so-called lens. Of course, that doesn't mean you can never observe anything contradicting your worldview. You can, and that will affect the theories in your mind. And those observations might refute some of your ideas about the world and replace them with new ones. But they too seem to be bounded by theory. And this idea that by looking at something, you know the true nature of that thing. Well, looking at something is a very complex process, right? Anyone who's at biology class in middle school knows that the light reflected from the object of observation enters the eye and is observed by the retina and uh, absorbed by the eye, then gets passes to like a bunch of stuff, then reaches the retina and then gets converted to electrical signals that get passed on to the brain where they get interpreted. So you end up interpreting these nerve firings and there's a lot of layer, layers that the initial light passes through to come to your understanding. So I don't know how you think of it, but in this sense, the idea of direct experience just seems to vaporize for me. And it's interesting that this idea of direct observation or direct experience itself is a concept which had to be invented at some point in time. I think it's very easy to rationalize this way of thinking where your ideas are primary and because you you see the effect your ideas have on the way you experience the world but first and foremost it is the experience that's primary i mean if you had no experience of the world you wouldn't form any ideas in the first place right because your your thinking is prompted by something right so like if you hang around a bunch of businessmen all day you're going to be thinking about business in your spare time. If you hang about a bunch of spiritual people, you're going to be thinking about spirituality in your spare time. So I, I think it's very easy to discount experience when you focus a lot on ideas, but I think it's a mistake. But don't you think there's theories and ideas involved when you're even around people who are you know, starting a business or whatnot? Sure, there is that experience, but what does that experience itself do? there's meaning attached to that experience, right? An inherent experience perhaps wouldn't really uh, mean anything. Uh, like if you're just experiencing it, what are you experience it, experiencing it through? Like uh, how are you experiencing it? And that kind of depends, I would think, on the theories you hold in your mind, the knowledge you have in your mind. The The theories you have, the ideas you have, like absolutely affect your experience the the only point i'm making is that they're not primary right so like there's this this interplay between experience and ideas or like say you believe in ghosts and then you hear a sound in your house and you don't know what caused the sound you're going to think a ghost is doing it right like i mean there are all sorts of examples where you can show the the correlation between experience and ideas i i'm just i'm just making the point of what's primary right like so um Descartes had that same that famous quote like I think therefore I am and I love uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jed McKenna I love how he kind of goes into this um, like he I don't remember exactly what he says it's been a while since I read his book but he talks about that quote a lot 
And he kind of drives home the point, like, how do you know that you exist? Hmm. Well, if you, if you want to rely on an idea, you know, what proves the idea? Yeah. I think it's an interesting line of thought to go down, but I mean, ultimately like existence is its own proof and everything within existence is secondary to it. Let's turn to shoulds or prescriptions as Kapogata would say. What's wrong with these shoulds or these prescriptions? You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I don't fully agree with Kapil's take on prescriptions. Um, I, th- I think he makes a very valid point about not just blindly following things, but I think maybe he takes it a little bit too far where he says, like, no prescriptions work. Um like obviously there are countless examples. Like if you want to work out and build some muscle, there are plenty of prescriptions that are going to get you there. Um, but if you're talking about like enlightenment and changing the nature of your mind, that stuff doesn't really come about because you're following some particular method. It comes about because you have deep realizations and those deep realizations are things that you you can't be prescribed, right? Like no no one can tell you like, oh, just realize that all of this doesn't matter. Like that's ridiculous. Yeah. And what about like, you know, you want to be a millionaire and those people have content regarding the 10 steps I took to become a millionaire and here's how you can too. Uh, yeah, I think most of that is just, content that's created to get views i don't think it's really aimed at getting results Hmm. none of the very successful people i know take that seriously at all yeah but you know there there are legitimate insights that you can give people into doing you know things of that nature like you can you can give people insights into creating wealth i mean there's this very well-known thread that naval ravikant wrote on how to get rich without getting lucky on twitter and there are a lot of great insights in there. Could you read through that and say, well, you know, he's really actually prescribing that you should productize yourself. Well, okay, but it's still a valuable insight. I think one of the idea, like the ideas that connect to the futility of prescriptions is inexplicit knowledge. So there's like a lot of knowledge that one cannot explicitly grasp, but one has in their mm-hmm. mind. And so... Yeah, Absolutely riding a bike is like an example that comes up in the mind, but this phenomenon exists almost everywhere, right? Uh, Because of this, people can't really understand what they themselves know inexplicitly. So let alone quote their advice to others seeking to be like them. But obviously you can make your inexplicit ideas explicit by thinking about uh, perhaps reflecting on why you're doing certain things, how you're doing certain things and, make that inexplicit explicit and so this you know if they quote their advice to others seeking to be more like them that's again a problem because everyone is different and sort of has different problem situations they're working in yeah yeah absolutely now there was this pretty interesting phenomenon i noticed it's like i I play piano and at one point i was learning from a transcription which basically means just someone listen to a recording, wrote down all the notes that this person played, and then you can read the notes and learn, you know, exactly what the person played. But I was learning this uh, transcription of an Oscar Peterson solo, 
is really phenomenal. If you haven't listened to Oscar Peterson, highly recommend him. And while I was learning it, I just realized like this would be easier for me to improvise than it would be for me to learn by reading it. And I think that's it really hits home the point on prescriptions, right? Mm -hmm. Because they they have a certain use where they're amazing, but they also have uses where they're they're just not effective. So you like you have to look at them and be intelligent about where you use them and where you don't. You can't just blindly reject them and you can't just blindly follow them. Yeah. Take a critical approach. And yeah, yeah, I think um, we'd want to talk about this when we delve into relationships. But like just right now, when you're giving someone a prescription, it also kind of affects the relationship between the person, you know, you're giving it and taking advice from or a prescription from and if it's like aimed at kind of coercively or forcefully which most of the prescriptions really aren't but some are again and uh that kind of messes up your relationship with the other person it's like you're authoritatively telling that person to do something and you know that person will do it and maybe does every word to it uh to that advice but then that person fails and then that person comes to this person uh, who was giving him the advice and uh, he was like, you know, I did everything you said, but it didn't really work out. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's like, just kind of messes up the relationship, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think that's, you know, more a way a factor of the approach than the prescription necessarily. Hmm. But I, I also think like, when you're dealing with prescriptions in general, you have to pose the question, you know, is this actually how this thing works? Right. It's like if you're trying to fix an engine, there's a particular way that the engine works and you can prescribe a fix for that if it's not working the way it's supposed to. But you get into something like meditation, for example, and, and specifically in the context of like seeking enlightenment or seeking to gain some sort of mastery over your mind. You can't pursue these things by just going through the motions. So if you're purely following a prescription for meditation just because it was prescribed, then obviously it's not going to work. But that comes from understanding how meditation works and how the mind works, not just from dismissing prescriptions blindly. Earlier, we talked about Kapil Gupta a bit and obviously have been building up his ideas of prescriptions. I saw in a tweet that you wrote in a comment, I think, that I used to like Kapil Gupta when somebody asked you what are your thoughts on Kapil Gupta. So, yeah, what do you think of him right now? And probably give the story a bit. I, I, he, has, he has some great insights. I like his books a lot. Um, I think a lot of his older content is better. I think he kind of fell into the trap a little bit of speaking to the disingenuous. So if you read a lot of his newer stuff, he talks about how, you know, people won't understand this or people aren't ready to hear this, or there are no serious seekers out there. And I just, I think he was writing his best stuff when he was writing for the serious seekers. Hmm. So I think, you know, he still has some great insights. I think he's worth reading, but you just kind of have to, have to find the nuggets in there. Sure. I've come across the terms 
sincere and insincere a lot of times in this truth-seeking space. And yeah, just what do they mean? What's the difference between like a sincere and an insincere question in spiritual jargon? So I think of sincerity as just being pure, as not having ulterior motives. So, for example, if you're pursuing it because you think you should, that's not a pure pursuit. If you are like asking a question about how to conquer the mind because you think that conquering the mind is spiritual and correct, then that's not a pure person. That's not a pure question. So sincere really, I mean, it means, it means the same as it means in everyday language. It's just a bit deeper here. I think at least that's the way I think about it. It's like if, if, if someone apologizes, if someone apologizes to you and you don't think they mean it, you'd say they're insincere. So in the same way, if someone's trying mm -hmm. to quiet their mind and you don't think they really care about quieting their mind, then they're insincere. Sure. And do you think, you know, we can figure out by obvious events that take place because of that person acting on those insincere uh, intentions? Or uh, is that for the person to decide? I think it's worth looking into for each individual what they're really sincere about. And generally speaking, a pretty good indicator of insincerity is that you just you haven't gotten what you claim to want. Sure. You know, if you have been meditating for years and you're still the same, you know, unhappy reactive person you were 5 years ago, then it's worth it's worth looking into if you really care about the result you say you're after. Do you meditate? I don't. Just think about these important ideas and look into the contents of your own mind. Yeah, you can you can get the benefits of meditation, the the calm state, the non-reactivity without meditating. That's not required by any means. When you understand the way that your mind works and the way that you have these reactions and the reason you're not peaceful on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, like you, you can solve these like you would solve any problem once you understand what the cause of the problem is. It's this weird phenomenon in spirituality where like if you put someone in with absolutely no knowledge, they're going to start exploring the problem. They're going to figure out, okay, what causes this? What are all the factors at play? But because they come in with prior knowledge, they think, okay, I have to meditate in order to achieve this effect. It's like because they think they know the solution, they don't actually analyze the problem. Hmm. Yeah, and I think, yeah, like I think the question what the problem is always more important than the solution the answer absolutely and perhaps delving into it more <clears throat> kind of reveals the answer itself and yeah i like that approach so uh yeah but i've heard i don't know how aware are you of sam harris and his ideas around non-dual mindfulness and the sense of self but he i haven't listened to him that much i actually used to meditate using his app a few years ago that was my first experience with meditation and and it was nice i didn't think anything badly of it i just kind of got what i felt i needed out of it and then stopped okay so what do you think about the sense of self or just this identity that we the sense of sense of self is a complete illusion 
Um, the the actual clearest definition I've heard of enlightenment, which was from Jed McKenna, is that enlightenment is just no self. And it's not something that you get to by trying to overcome yourself or trying to get rid of yourself. It's something that you come to by looking genuinely into whether yourself is real or not. From the first person perspective. And I, I think that that's kind of ironic, right? Uh, you want to be enlightened and you're saying self doesn't exist. So who's getting enlightened, right? And Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a total trap. That, and I mean, the search for enlightenment is full of traps. That's, that's basically <laughs> all it is. It's like one, you know, one landmine after another. And you kind of have to learn to avoid all of them when you're seeking. But see, seeking enlightenment because you want to become the guy that's enlightened is completely insincere and you're never going to get there. It's yeah. just a sad reality. Hmm. let's turn to relationships uh relationships have a <clears throat> have a huge influence on people of course and they can literally make or break lives what do you think is the purpose of relationships i don't think there's some sort of top-down objective purpose for having relationships i think people enter into relationships for their own reasons and those reasons Maybe similar between people, but they're not, you know, preordained. Hmm. Yeah, and I think like one of the main one of the main causes that leads to kind of problems around relationships, and not just romantic, but even platonic relationships. I think that most, if not all, problems in a relationship can be boiled down to insecurity. Uh, mm -hmm. So, like. Why do people while away their time with casual friends and unproductive relationships, right? They have an insecurity of being left alone without any friends. Perhaps. And yeah. how does a parent impose their will on his kid? Uh, that parent has certain expectations and insecurity for the kid not doing what he'd like the kid to do. So, yeah, I may be wrong about the whole boiling it down to insecurity idea, but I think that's the way most of it most of the problems no are. i think that's that's the vast majority of relationship problems summed up is just insecurity i think the greatest relationship hack that there is is to be completely comfortable in your own company to not need anything from anyone else and then you are free to you know choose relationships that you enjoy or discard relationships you don't enjoy it's also interesting when an adult has a disagreement They would rather use reason and explanations to persuade someone, though this always does not happen. And when those fail, they they won't switch to forcing their will on the fellow adult because imposing that would kind of damage the relationship. But unfortunately, with children, they don't seem to have those same concerns about preserving those relationships and kind of freely force our will upon them and coerce them. And I'm I'm totally <clears throat> against that, but Yeah, I would just love to hear your thoughts on raising a child, maybe parenting. Yeah, I I mean I'm not a parent myself, so I can only speak with secondhand, you know, observations, but I, I have noticed that the more parents try to force their kids into a specific mold, whatever that mold may be, it's like when you apply pressure to something there's going to be some sort of result, right? It's not like you just apply pressure and things go smoothly every single time. It's not like, you know, pushing a brick into place. Yeah. 
you press the person in a particular direction and they always have some sort of resistance to that. So I think, you know, the best parenting I've seen is very soft. It's very, I don't quite know the right word, but it's not forceful, right? It's enticing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the, it's the best word. Enticing, not forceful. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Like, I I think if you can help someone understand something instead of giving them a rule, Hmm. it serves them much better in life. Obviously, there are exceptions, right? You can't, you can't explain to your two year old why he can't wander out into the street, like you just have to, you know, tell him not to and it's for his own good. But generally speaking, if you can help people understand instead of giving them rules that that has a much better impact over the long term. Yeah, so it goes back to the idea of shoulds or should nots and prescriptions like uh you know ultimately there are no shoulds there are yeah that's right these principles that you can adhere to not adhere to and you know use your own experience and knowledge to get improve on your ideas and make better progress if you like so well so the problem with should or should not is that it depends on what you want and there is no, you know, there's no correct want and there's no incorrect want. That's not how desire works, right? You you kind of just want what you want. If it's not a genuine want, then you can see through it and stop wanting that. But at the end of the day, should and should not completely depends on where you want to go. And it's easy if you use the analogy of like giving someone directions when they're driving, right? Like, well what address are you going to okay if you want to get there with the least amount of traffic then this is the way you should go Mm. or if you want to get there with the best scenery this is the way you should go but without those parameters it doesn't make any sense to tell a person hey you should go here yeah yeah that puts things into perspective um yeah if you don't mind i have some some personal questions to ask no, you can ask him. I can't guarantee I'll answer him, but feel free to <laughs> sure. ask. Uh, yeah, I've heard you say, like in many places, that you're at peace. And, you know, as we talked about before, circumstances themselves aren't positive or negative, but our reactions to them make certain circumstances peaceful or unpeaceful. But there's like a wide diversity of these circumstances. And to be at balance, I feel <clears throat> there's always an opposite force being involved uh i don't know if force is the right word but it's like an opposite push being involved and to sustain you must constantly make things that aren't working obsolete and then build on the good ideas to remain at that balance that's what i think and you know you can't just be at peace all the time you don't arrive at peace so maybe what i'm getting at here is that yeah what do you think you keep having to do to remain at peace, if at all, anything specific? So there is actually a misconception in your question. Mm -hmm. And the misconception is that the movement you have to counteract is outside of yourself. So it is true that if you want to keep things balanced perfectly in the middle and there's a force pushing you this way, you need an equal force pushing that way. The realization that you have to have, though, if you want to be at peace, is that those opposing forces both exist in your mind. So when some bad event happens, 
It's not the event that upsets you, it's the reaction of your mind. If you eliminate that reaction, you eliminate that force going in one direction, you don't need an opposing force because you've, you've gotten rid of it. So if you can eliminate completely all of your reactions, then you're at peace. You think we can do that? Completely eliminate our reactions? Like Absolutely. Sure. And and that's not that's not to say that you don't act, right? So you still act according to what the situation calls, but you don't react emotionally. So if something happens and you were trying to, you know, prevent that from happening, doesn't mean you have to get upset. Ups, mm. Upset is purely a reaction of your mind, but you can still react to the situation without your mind reacting emotionally. Still react to the situation without your mind reacting to it emotionally. Yeah. An easy example is like if your house is burning down, like you don't have to be emotional about it, but you're still going to get up and run out of the house. Yeah. Don't, don't you think that's the emotions that fire you up to get up and run away from your house? It's rational. For the vast majority of people, that's absolutely true. But in the absence of those, you find other motivations. I kind of heard you speaking on Clubhouse with Nawal a while back. And if I remember correctly, the story, how it goes, it's like this. You were following him on Twitter for a while. And after having some back and forth there, Nawal really thought of you as this wise person and then contacted you to, <laughs> to meet up. And so uh, he thought we could really learn a thing or two from you and you could be of help to him. So you meet up and Nawal asks you, well, how do you get into this truth-seeking business? And you say, oh, I was following you and reading your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good memory. Uh, how that kind of go? Like, Because you, you got into this whole idea uh, maze because of him, partly, or I don't know, you all have a better take it, uh, say on it. But... Yeah, I was uh, I was actually in college at the time. And I heard him on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And some of the things he said, it was a long time ago, so I don't even remember what the particular you know, insights were, but just some of the things he said were totally orthogonal to anything I'd ever heard before. And so I kind of, like, I, I was obviously very enticed by that, very interested in it right from the start. And that just kind of sent me down the, the truth-seeking rabbit hole. And so I read, I, I don't even remember how many books I read. I read a ton of books on spirituality, um, you know, listen to talks. Alan Watts has great talks if you're into listening instead of reading. Um, did a lot of self-reflection and introspection and self-inquiry and kind of, you know, came out the other side a different person. Nice. Yeah. And, you know, the story again, kind of the Nawal story, it kind of ties to that idea that people are different and the interpretations of time, processes, and human events differ from season to season, year to year, and decade to decade. So, yeah, it's just kind of a fun, funny thing to see happen, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and those sort of pursuits depend tremendously on how serious you are about them. Um, you know, you could take someone that's very intelligent and you could say all the right things to them 
But if they're not ready to hear those things, they're not going to land. And being really serious about like what, whatever it is, like if, if you're trying to overcome anxiety or if you're trying to develop a quiet mind, you, you have to be very serious about that endeavor in order for the insights to land. Why do you think people are, some people are not so serious about them? Is it because of shoulds, prescriptions, they are kind of, yeah, just wanting you know, to go there. Being serious about that stuff, it's largely a side effect of seeing how important that stuff is. So if it's really obvious to you that your mind is wreaking havoc in your life, you naturally become serious about stopping that. It's like, I mean, to go back to the burning building example, it's like if you don't know the building's on fire, you're not very serious about getting out of it. But once you see it's on fire, mm. no one has to convince you. So I think people would be better served if they if they really want to you know find out what they're serious about. They just have to do some digging. They have to do some reflection, and try as best they can to accurately see their situation. It's not a factor of listening to the right motivational speeches. Yeah, because that that's just sitting in a burning building with your eyes closed and having someone tell you it's on fire. What do you think are the best questions you've been asked or some of the questions that you think are quite sincere? Of course, that matters who it's coming from. Uh, not always, but sometimes, but the question themselves, questions themselves can be very uh, inherently interesting or fun. Yeah, I, I can't remember particular questions I've been asked. I don't I don't even remember answers I give two minutes after I give them. But you know, in terms of the sincerity of the question, the same question asked by two different people is a completely different question. So it it's not so much that it matters who asked it, but it matters the state of the person that asked it. Would that affect your answer or would that shouldn't absolutely. It would. Absolutely. Okay. So if if someone comes to me and asks, how do I overcome suffering? And like the context for that question is, yeah, you know, they just had a bad day. They're kind of down about their situation at work. Like that, that sort of thing, a very, like very superficial. My answer is going to be totally different than if someone comes to me and you kind of have like, when someone asks a really sincere question, you can hear it in their voice, right? They they kind of change their tonality. So if someone comes and asks that question very sincerely, like, I realize I've been suffering my entire life. I'm ready to stop. How do I overcome suffering? That's the start of a very deep conversation. How do you think about freedom? In what context? In... kind of the freedom that we're all wanting to have, but we don't really want to go to that route perhaps to attain it or to get it, or maybe it, it really isn't something that we can attain forever or we can, but constrained in some aspects. You, you mean internal freedom? Yeah, internal. Uh, I mean, Oh, freedom is internal, I would think, external. Well, I mean, you can say that, but there are genuine external freedoms. Like if you have 
financial freedom. That's a, that's a real thing, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, but, just uh, I'll be speaking about internal freedom. Yeah, I I think it's amazing. It's something that really speaks to me on a deep level. I couldn't imagine living a life without it. Hmm. I mean, when you kind of overcome those, I mean, really imprisoning tendencies of your mind, your life is completely different. It, it doesn't even resemble the life you used to live. Yeah. It's kind of the path that if you want to describe, obviously not as a prescription, but just your own path that you kind of took to remove these or eliminate these tendencies uh, from the mind. I, I would say that from an external onlooker's perspective, it looked a lot like meditation. But what was really going on was I was, you know, sitting or lying down or whatever, the position doesn't matter. I was trying to figure out the mechanics of these things, how they actually work, where they come from, why they come up in the first place. And eventually when you understand it deeply enough and you understand why you want to get rid of it, the getting rid of it part happens on its own. So this is this is the case with anxiety, anger, depression, desire, all, all of these things. Once you see it clearly enough, such that you can never unsee it, everything changes. Hmm. Do you think time, the conception of time overlaps with this? Uh, the, the finitude of our lives, perhaps, can allow one to think deeply and meditate deeply about these ideas and just think about what really one wants instead of focusing on all the things they should want. I really don't think so. You know, you hear people make statements like life is too short to suffer. But I feel like that's not a very well thought through statement because if life was long, would suffering hurt any less? No, it, it still sucks and you want to get rid of it. Hmm. So I, I think regardless of how long your life is, you know, when you are paying attention to your current experience, it's either pleasant or it's not, and it doesn't matter how much longer you're going to have it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And the, you know, non-pleasurable events seem to go for longer, but then that's just your memory of it. And once you've gone through that experience, uh, everything that exists is just the here and the now, right? Everything in consciousness at this present moment. But then once you kind of go past that and then you reflect on that, then it, it feels like, okay, I just, it, that like when you're thinking about the pain, it's like, it's just a memory of that pain or the fear that you're going to have more pain. But every second of you experiencing that pain is itself like, you know, you've made it. Like you've gone through that pain in that one second. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what you're, what point you're making. Well, so let's say, you know, people fear about the pain or they, they feel 
pain and they don't want it anymore, but they're going through that pain and every second that they're going, they're, you know, kind of moving away from that, like not moving away from that pain, but then they're resolving that pain in that moment at least. And then what they essentially have is a memory of that pain from the previous moment. Mm -hmm. And then they fear they want to stop it because they think the pain, you know, it's going to keep arising. It's going to keep happening in the future. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, I think that's a pretty good definition of fear in general is just the memory of pain. <laughs>